are you? And uh, ready for Thanksgiving, I hope. Going to be cutting out here in a day or so. And uh, uh, we have a one campaign. Do you all know we have a one campaign here at Baylor? Jamie Bates is the president, and I wanted her just to share a little bit about how you can connect with that. Hey, y'all. Um, y'all saw our video beforehand. Basically, the One Campaign is an international nonprofit of about 2.4 million Americans dedicated to eliminating poverty and fighting diseases like malaria, tuberculosis, and AIDS. But we work with a lot of different issues from education, um, environmental sustainability, maternal health care, all different sites, sorts of things. Um, but basically, I want to tell you how you can get involved today in, in, as a college student. Um, because our generation is really the generation that has the opportunity to really make a difference um, with these issues. And because we're graduating in a few years, and we can really learn about these issues and then take it and apply it to our careers or possibly businesses we start, that sort of thing. Um, so the One Campaign realized the need to get students involved about two years ago, and they started the One Campus Challenge. And that's a competition of over 2,000 schools where we get points on the ad advocacy and awareness events that we hold um, in our communities. Uh, and basically, you can get involved by this. Um, we're going to have a table out front where you can sign up. You're going to basically be saying that you support one's causes and the, uh, the work that we do. And by doing so, you'll get an email maybe once or twice a month, if that. And it'll be just be, you'll simply click it and you'll sign a petition that can maybe increase financial aid, or not financial aid, sorry, um, foreign aid, that sort of thing. Um, and... Also, you'll be signing up, and you'll get an email about the things that we're, gonna help, we're doing on campus. And so you can get involved by doing that. You'll get a free one-man by signing up. And I just encourage you to look at our website, one.org, slash campus, and see what all the other schools are doing. But thank you. Thanks, Jamie. Happy Thanksgiving. I know you hear a lot, and you hear a lot from the stage about ways to plug in and make a difference even uh, now. And I, my hope is that it doesn't become just kind of noise for you where you just sort of hear it and become becomes sort of like static to your heart. Don't let it do that. This is just one example of a place where if you keep your ears open, your eyes open along the way, maybe this becomes the thing for you, the issue for you that you really embrace maybe for the rest of your life. So just stay open. Maybe stop by those tables when they're out there. Find out. See if one of these things doesn't tug at you and, and become one of the passions of, of your life. That's really what we're trying to do with Monday chapels. What's the message of God to you? What is the message of the church, the conversation from the church? What is the challenge and the proclamation that comes from the church? And it, it comes to us in all sorts of ways here on Monday. This morning, Eric Bryant is here. Maybe you have read his book, Peppermint Filled Pinatas, or seen it along the way. He is a minister of a very creative and innovative church in California, Mosaic. He's also a Baylor graduate, 1993, and uh, he is here this morning to speak to us. His book is on sale just for Baylor students for $5 as you leave here today. Normally it's 15 You can also sign up out there if you'd like to win a free audio version of the book. You can sign up outside at the table or go to his website, ericbryant.org, and you can sign up and win a free audio book. I'm so glad he's here today. Again, he's, he's a part of the church that's coming in here to this moment to speak to us and challenge us. He's just going to be talking about how do we love the people that the church loves to hate. And I want you to welcome him home to Baylor and to the chapel stage now. This is Eric Bryant.
But actually, everyone needs to eat, but we can offer the message of Jesus in a way that makes sense to the people around us. In essence, what she was trying to say, maybe unintentionally, is that the church, if we're not careful, can become a conformist institution where we go just out of obligation. But Jesus didn't want to just start something where everybody looked the same, act the same. What he wanted to do was release us, unleash us to become the people he created us to be, the unique people. But also it kind of has this idea of, I want a church that meets my needs. Whenever I was in, uh, at this place called 21 Choices, it's like a yogurt place, and it's, you know, it's healthy for you. So you know, even if you add the Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, it's, you know, it's still healthy because it's yogurt. And you go in there, I don't know if you guys have uh, Cold Stone Creamery, you know how they mix things up, right? And then they give you the spoon, right, to test it. And if you like it, you keep it. If not, you can mix in even more. Well, I don't know what was happening to me that day. I mean, she mixed it up, and she put the spoon over the counter, and I got on my tippy toes, <laughs> and I let her feed me. Now, embarrassing to just be a grown man and let a stranger feed you. My little kids were there. My son started pushing the stroller away, all ashamed of his dad. <clears throat> It's tragic when an adult doesn't know how to feed himself. And yet, how often do we look for a church to feed us? We know enough already. We should find a church where we are helping change the world. At Mosaic, we say it like this. Our lead pastor's name is Erwin McManus. And he says this, The church is not here to meet our needs. We are the church here to meet the needs of the world. And and honestly, I, I think part of us growing up If you grew up going to church, you know, you hear this word fellowship, and a lot of times we think of fellowship as what Christians do for each other. You know, fellowship is this idea of almost hiding from the world. But actually, I didn't really understand fellowship until a movie came out called The Lord of the Rings. The Fellowship of the Ring. Right? And you remember this movie, if you've seen it, right? You have these dwarves and these hobbits and these people and elves, these creatures that hated each other, yet they came together for a common cause. That's fellowship. I love that movie, too. I think I'm related to hobbits. <clears throat> My mom, she's 4 feet 11 inches tall, and she has hairy feet. So I think I must be related. Actually, when uh, my kids were born, 10th percentile, they were born, both of them, 10th percentile height and weight, 90th percentile head. They came out like little bobbleheads. When they would crawl, they'd just drag their head alongside of them. I told my wife if it hadn't been for the C-section, they'd still be in there. Yeah, she didn't like that joke either. It was not funny. <laughs> and when actually one time I went to the doctor with my son Caleb, and I said, I'm really concerned. Caleb is so much smaller than all the other kids in his class. What should we do? And she looked at me. She said, well, Mr. Bryant, you and your wife are little people. I was like, thanks a lot. And I'm going back to my treehouse, and I'm making some cookies, but I'm not giving any to you. <clears throat> We see, fellowship isn't what Christians do for each other. It's more like in the Lord of the Rings, right? In fact, Philippians chapter 1-4 translate that same word as your partnership in the gospel. See, fellowship isn't just what Christians do for each other. It's what Christians do together for the world. And yet sometimes I think we forget that, and we fall into this trap where we end up seeing ourselves as a, a place to hide from the world. And in fact, if we're not careful, we end up eliminating all friendships other than those who look like us and believe like us and act like us. In fact, if we're not careful, we become more like Jonah. You all know the story of Jonah. Right? He's got this book, a whole entire book of the Bible named after him, and we consider him this great hero. But if you read the story of Jonah, he did not like the people of Nineveh. In 
fact, he hated them. He saw them as the enemy. Maybe you remember the story. Maybe you've heard about it growing up in Sunday school. Maybe you saw the VeggieTales movie. Maybe that's where you're more familiar with it, right? And here's a guy who actually runs in the opposite direction because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And as a result, there's this big storm. And rather than saying, you know what, I know the storm is my fault. Why don't you take me back? I'll go to Nineveh. He says, throw me overboard. He would rather die than go to Nineveh. And just before he's about to drown, he's being surrounded by the sea with this giant fish comes and swallows him up. And he has a chance to reconsider. And for the next three days, he has this moment, right? And then he's spat up on the land, and then it tells us in chapter 3, verse 4, that he goes into the city, and here's his message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. That's all he said. But notice the response, chapter 3, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. And they declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Everybody turned to God. And I think the reason that Jonah didn't want to go is he did not want to see this happen. These were his enemies, right? And sometimes we, perhaps inadvertently, we create barriers between us and the world around us. It's almost as if we want to limit who we think God should love. I learned this when we were up in Seattle helping plant this church. I was helping with the youth group. And our very first event, there were seven of us planning, preparing, and our youth event was called Youth Explosion 94. We were so excited, right? Such a great name. It was going to be life-changing. And the day came, and not one teenager showed up to our event. You know how embarrassing it is to be a youth pastor of no youth? I didn't have a youth group. I didn't even have a youth. It was embarrassing. And so I looked around, and I said, you know what? Maybe some of the teenagers forgot it's tonight, or maybe they need a ride. Maybe they don't want to walk up the hill. And so a couple of us got in a car, and we drove off looking for a teenager, any teenager we could find. And we drive down the hill, and I see this one kid, and he's playing basketball. So I jump out of the car, and I, I run up to him, and I said, hey, did you hear about Youth Explosion 94? Thinking he'd say, no, tell me all about it. But he didn't say that. He looked at me, he said, no. And I said, well, it's happening right now. You should come. It's going to be great. Then he looks over his bicycle. So I read his mind. I said, oh, don't worry. You don't have to ride your bicycle up the hill, and I picked it up, and I put it in the trunk of my car. I said, come on, get in. And so he did. And so we start driving up the hill to Youth Explosion 94, and I introduced myself. I said, my name's Eric. What's your name? And he said, my name's Saeed Abdu. I thought, that's kind of an unusual name. Hey, people on the West Coast, we name our kids unusual names, right? When we were in Lamaze class, one of our friends, they named their baby Fiona Maid, right? That was even before Shrek. They named her Fiona. And then this other little boy, he was born from our Lamaze class. His name is Planet Moses Boniface Canalis. They call him Moses. I call him Pimo. That's my little nickname for him. And then for our son, we couldn't decide, right? I wanted to name him Caleb Michael, Courageous Messenger. But my wife really wanted to give him her maiden name as his middle name. But I said, there's no way. If he doesn't like going by Caleb, he will certainly not go by Ellis. That's not going to work. And we just could not agree. And so finally, we gave him his name. His legal name is Caleb Michael Ellis Bryant. His name now means courageous messenger in a field. <laughs> that was not what I was going for. But see, Saeed Adu, that was so unusual. And so I asked him, I said, oh, what does your name mean? And then he began to explain to me that his name was Muslim, that he was from a country called Eritrea, which is next to Ethiopia. And I thought, of all the kids I could have picked up for Youth Explosion 94, I picked up Saeed. And as I drove into the parking lot, I noticed there was one other teenager there with her dad. 
Youth Explosion 94 was on. Eight adults, two kids, right? And for the next four years, something amazing happened. Saeed kept coming to youth group on Wednesday nights, even as he'd go to the mosque on Friday. And he invited more people to our youth group than anyone else over those four years. And I remember one time preparing to have this conversation with him, right? I was going to have a debate. You know, my God can beat up your God. That was kind of the, the theme. And as I got ready and as I began this conversation with him, I discovered I actually knew more about Islam than he did. He explained to me that he only went to the mosque because his parents dragged him there. I thought, oh, wow, that happens in your culture too? And as I discussed with him, I, I had a chance to share with him that he could know God personally, and his name is Jesus. And although he didn't decide in that moment to follow Jesus, several of his friends that he invited did. And so just before we were about to move to Los Angeles, I had to ask him, I said, Saeed, why did you keep coming to youth group, and why did you bring so many friends? And he looked at me and he said, well, you were my first friend. I was shocked. If he had you know, known my heart, if I had known his identity, I would have said no for him. I would have assumed he didn't want to come, or maybe I wouldn't have wanted him to come. It was almost as if he was telling me that, look, people don't hang out with immigrants, and I'm an immigrant. People don't hang out with people who are poor, and he lived with his 11 brothers and sisters and parents in a three-bedroom apartment. It was as if he was saying, I don't look like everybody else in Seattle, and people don't hang out with people who don't look like them. People don't hang out with Muslims, but you've welcomed me into this youth group. And he said that the reason he invited so many of his friends is because they too felt isolated. I was stunned. So then I had to ask him, I said, well, Saeed, why did you even come to youth group that very first night? This big smile came across his face. He said, I thought you were kidnapping me. <laughs> I didn't know English very well. You put my bicycle in the trunk of your car. I thought, this is it. This crazy white guy is going to kill me. Now, in order to grow your youth group, I would not recommend kidnapping Muslim kids. But to become a better person, I would recommend befriending one. Not allowing someone's beliefs or their appearance or their station in life or the choices that they make to become a litmus test for friendship. That actually we need to learn to like and even love people that we disagree with. Now, it's interesting. I mean, I've been married almost 15 years now, and my wife, we're best friends. But even sometimes she needs reassurance, and I need reassurance that we still love each other. Because let's face it, you hurt the people that you are closest to. I mean, how many of you have ever had a roommate that they were a great friend, terrible roommate? Like, we get along so much better when we don't see each other every day, right? That happens sometimes. And so sometimes my wife, just to be reaffirmed, I suppose, will wake me up in the middle of the night to ask me questions that I could never possibly answer correctly. So in the middle of the night, she asked me, she says, Eric, would you still love me if I gain weight? So I said, how much? <laughs> I mean, of course, right? No matter what, I'll love you no matter what. It's not fair to ask me questions in the middle of the night. So then another time she asked me, she says, Eric, would you still love me if I was horribly disfigured in an auto accident? Were you driving my car? You know, were you at fault? Is our insurance going up? Oh, of course I'd still love you. I get tired of these questions. So I said to her, I said, Debbie, would you still love me if spoke like Yoda did I? I don't even think she got it. Then she asked me the worst question to ever be asked of a married man. True story. She taps me on the shoulder. She says, Eric, 
would you still love me if I were a man? It's like, what? What? I was having some horrible nightmare. It's like, what are you talking about? She said, well, what if the only way for me to survive that auto accident was to become a man? What kind of accident did you have? And I don't know what she wants me to say. Yes, I mean, no. And then it hit me. It's like, Debbie, if the only way to, for you to survive the auto accident was to become a man, then I would become a woman. Now let me go back to sleep. Stop asking these questions. Now if somebody who I love more than anyone else on the planet isn't sure of my love for her sometimes, can you imagine the people around us, what they must feel we think of them? If we could learn to love the people around us and show that love by listening, by having a conversation, by serving, we'll be amazed at the doors that open. And sometimes somebody was asking me, you know, you tell that story about allowing a Muslim into your youth group. I mean, weren't you afraid that he was going to convert the other teenagers? I mean, how can you allow someone to belong to your community or even belong to your life before they believe? I mean, what about the children? I thought, what? Well, this is a great example. Children. How many of you are aunts or uncles? Any of you? Okay, a few of you. Then you know when kids are born, they're pagans, Right? They're cute and they're cuddly, but they're heathens. I mean, they come out within six months, they're lying. Did you know that? I think my kids were overachievers. When my little girl was born, Trevi, when she was born, she came out screaming, not like a baby, more like a velociraptor. I looked over and the doctor looked like Jeff Goldblum. It was horrifying. And when she was two, I remember she'd walk over to the closet and she'd point out the clothes she wanted to wear. It was so cute until I got the wrong skirt. She starts screaming at me. And I thought, this kid can't talk, but she can accessorize. She's so strong-willed, she's going to grow up to be the next Billy Graham or a dictator of a small country. So when she was three, I said, Trevi, would you like to grow up to be a leader? She looked at me, she said, I'm already a leader. And you know, it's true. Every morning, my son, every morning, wakes up, and he makes me so proud. He turns on Sports Center. You know how nice it is to wake up to da-da-da, da-da-da. But here's where he disappoints me. His younger sister walks into the room, and he changes the channel to cartoons. But it gets worse. He then hands her the remote control. Pray for my son. She is a leader. When she was four, I said, Trevi, when you grow up, do you want to be president of the United States? She said, yes, I want my picture on the dollar. That same summer, my, my little boy got baptized. You know, he decided to follow Jesus. So I said, Trevi, would you like to follow Jesus? She said, I already told Jesus I would be his leader. <laughs> that is not what I hope to hear. Now, in spite of the fact that my little girl has decided to start her own world religion where Jesus follows her, we've never kicked her out of the house. We still loved on her and fed her. Now, we've had hard conversations with her. But ultimately, she decided she too wanted to follow Jesus. And I wonder if we could treat other people like we do our children, to have patience with them, to have, sure, hard conversations, but to have times of forgiveness and graciousness. We would be amazed at what might happen. See, being a loving community means being inclusive and having hard conversations. But sometimes we need to know the order. 
which to do those. Jonah sees one of the most remarkable moments in history. About 600,000 people, scholars estimate, chose to follow God there in Nineveh. But I want you to notice God's response and how it compares to Jonah's response. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. See, God is prone towards forgiveness and mercy. But notice Jonah. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, and I hate that about you. Now, Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. This guy is angry because the Ninevites were his enemy. They didn't look the same. They had made different choices. They had a different type of religion, different politics. He wanted nothing to do with them. He had decided that God's love did not go far enough to include them. And yet God said, no, I love people that you don't even like. I wonder if we've gotten that in our own lives, that we love unlikable people. We serve them, even when we disagree with them. There's a short film that we created at Mosaic I wanted to show you. It's called Beauty. And I think it captures how God sees us and even how we should see other people. Let's watch. I wonder, do you realize 
that no matter how broken, how bruised you might be, that God still sees you as valuable? Do we realize that the people that sit next to us in class or that we work with or that we live with or that we're related to, that God sees them no matter how messed up they are as valuable? When I was here at Baylor, I was a part of this revival steering committee, and we put on this big event, and Dave Busby was our speaker, and Louis Giglio was leading in the music, and, and we had this week of every night was really powerful. It was over at the Farrell Center, and thousands of people were showing up, and there was never an invitation. And so on the last day, we asked the speaker, we said, could you tonight have an invitation? Like, that's what you do at revivals. You know, invite people up to the front to follow Jesus or recommit their lives or something. And he said, oh, yeah, tonight we'll have an invitation. Like, okay, great. And so that night he talked about this passage from the scriptures where these two blind men were screaming out to Jesus, saying, Son of God, have mercy on us. And people kept telling him, shut up, be quiet. And they kept screaming, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us. And Jesus heard them, and he turned, and he walked to them, and he looked at them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And the two blind men said, we want to see. So Jesus healed them. And he said that tonight, Jesus is asking you that question. What do you want me to do for you? And so tonight's invitation is I want you to come to the front, and in front of thousands of people on this microphone, I want you to tell Jesus what you want him to do for you. And I remember turning over to the other people on the committee, and we were like, this isn't what we meant. This isn't what we were hoping for. And then there was this long, awkward pause. Now, I'd been doing the announcements all week, so I thought, well, maybe I should go up and do the announcements now. But that would kind of be weird. Like, hey, and while you're considering what Jesus wants, what you want from Jesus, don't forget, Michael English is in concert tomorrow night. But before I had a chance to even consider it, a guy stood up from our team. He was in charge of follow-up, so he starts walking over, and I thought, oh, he's going to fix this. But then I noticed he was crying. Okay, he's not going to fix anything. And then on the microphone, the very first person to share, he says, God, I'm struggling with lust. I can't stop seeing women as objects. And then he began to describe his struggle with lust in great detail. I remember thinking, this is horrible. I'd rather have the awkward silence. And then someone came up, a young woman, saying, God, I, I care too much about what people think and now I have an eating disorder and I need help. And then the young man comes up and he starts crying, God, I hate you. I'm so angry with you. You took my dad from me. Ever since he died, I can't help but be angry. Help me not be angry anymore. And then one person after another kept sharing what they needed from Jesus. And it was then that I knew I needed something from him. But I didn't want to go to the front. I mean, I knew Jesus could answer my prayer sitting there. But I just kept feeling like he wanted me to go to the front. I thought, this isn't fair. I, I, I do the announcements. They're going to know who I am. Everybody else is airing their dirty laundry. No one knows who they are. But I finally had the courage to walk to the front, and with tears streaming down my face, I confessed in front of thousands of people, I don't love people. I don't care if they're hurting. I don't care if they've had a bad day. I don't even care if they're dying without you. God, help me to love people. And I started walking back to my seat, and I saw my parents there. I was so encouraged they stayed. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, I'd given them a ride in the car. <laughs> and I don't know if revival broke out at Baylor, but I do know that I've never been the same since. 
I caught a glimpse of God's heart for people. And it changed the trajectory of my life. And I want to just challenge you and encourage you to trust Jesus when he says that if you want to find your life, you have to lose your life for my sake. I've been kind of hard on Jonah. But in chapter 3, verse 3, he did go into the city. I wonder, are you and I willing to go where the church hasn't been willing to go before? You know, if you would, let's stand together for a closing prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you can give us a glimpse of your heart for people. Show us how to love and to serve, not to impose our beliefs on other people, but to allow them to belong to our lives. Help us to treat others with the same kindness that the people who reached out to us treated us. God, you can change the planet through the women and men in this room, and I pray you would do that. They would not have any fear that keeps them from it. God, even as we go home to see family over Thanksgiving, help us to love unlikable people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And God bless. Happy Thanksgiving.